Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. In the last letter that Paul wrote before his head was removed, a letter that he wrote to Timothy, his young son in the faith, his protege, if you will, a young pastor, in that letter, 2 Timothy, Paul told Timothy this, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So think of a soldier in the Middle East and a superior ranking officer tells him that on the following day they're going into such and such a village to perform a reconnaissance. And if that soldier were to say to the ranking officer, ah, I'm so sorry. I've actually already planned to go with my buddies down to this other town. We found a restaurant that we love and we're going to get dinner there. So maybe another day? Does the military work that way? <laughs> Thankfully, no. The military couldn't work that way. Everyone doing what they want without a sense of cohesion, without a sense of submission to other authorities. That's Paul's point. No soldier entangles himself in civilian affairs, throws himself at sightseeing and restaurants and tourist attractions while he is on a mission because his ranking officer has enlisted him to join with him in the task, the mission, a very important one. So a civilian can take a day off, can call in sick if they are sick or and take some personal time off and go to the restaurant. But the person in the military can't do that. Because a person in the military, a soldier, does not entangle himself in civilian pursuits. That is what Paul was telling to Timothy. Now, Paul wasn't in the military and neither was Timothy. But in another sense, they were. Paul was a soldier engaged in a cosmic sort of battle. The same kind that's happening right now that you're a part of, if you didn't know. He was fighting to advance the front lines of the gospel to where it had not been heard against great opposition of the very gates of hell. That's why he was stoned. That's why he was beaten with rods. That was the devil working, conspiring and inspiring in the hearts of people, however he does it, to fight against Paul, to stop the gospel. And Paul, with boldness and courage, had to press forward with the weapons of his warfare not being literal physical weapons, but instead being words tearing down lofty arguments. So Paul was a soldier. So what he says to Timothy applies to him. That's why he says it. If the Lord gave Paul a dream and there was a Macedonian or some unreached people group saying, please come over and help us. When Paul wakes up from this dream from the Lord, he won't say, ah, oh, Lord, I would love to take the gospel into these new regions, but... I already have plans to see a movie tonight, <laughs> so I can't. No good soldier entangles himself in civilian pursuits so that he may please the one who enlisted him. In this case, Paul does not entangle himself in civilian pursuits because he'd been enlisted by God. You say, whew, glad I'm not an apostle. <laughs> Listen, you've been enlisted by God too. He says it to Timothy. And he can say it to you. 
There is a way you lived your life before you knew Christ, entangled in civilian pursuits, just the normal humdrum, mundane parts of life. And you gave yourself to them, forms of entertainment or hobbies that you had or your work or what have you. You didn't just do them, you entang they were your life. They controlled you. And now Paul says, you've been called out of that. You've been shown that this life you're living is part of a battle. And so you can't entangle yourself in those anymore. Not if you're going to be a good soldier. When Christ walks the shore and sees you mending your nets or washing your nets and he calls to you, you, follow me. Then you leave your net. You don't get entangled in it. You leave the net and you go and follow him. So I'm not saying you don't pay your mortgage. You still have to pay your mortgage, sorry. You still have to get the oil changed on your car. You still have to cut your hair. You still have to be involved in civilian pursuits, if you will. Paul's point is you don't get entangled in them. Your life's not about them. You have to think about your financial future, but there's a way to think about it as a soldier of Christ, and there's a way to think about it where you're entangled in it, where it's what drives your life. It makes the decisions for you. You know that kind of life, and we're all tempted toward it at times. And Paul says you can't do that and be a good soldier of Christ. You will lose the battle, whether that's your financial future or your hobby that you have or your work or anything on earth. Those, quote, who deal with the world, Paul said, must act as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Passing away. Christ is not seated in heaven, scrolling through his Instagram feed, while the church on earth is bombarded with cannons from the devil. What is Christ doing right now? Even Christ, the one who enlisted us. His hands are raised as he's interceding for us because he knows we're in part of a war. Battles are happening. Bullets are flying. You might be asleep to it, but it's happening nonetheless. People forsake the faith. People turn away. The culture becomes hostile to it. It's a battle that's happening for your soul and the souls of others to turn you away from the Lord and the devil and his legions are engaged in it and Christ is in heaven interceding for you today, every single day, so that your faith may not fail. And if the one who enlisted you is so actively involved even after his victory on the cross, then how much more for you? You have to be engaged in the conflict too. He raises his hands just like Moses of old. That's what gives us the victory as it did for Joshua. But Joshua still had to fight and we still have to fight. But if you get entangled in civilian pursuits, you stop fighting. You're playing cards in your foxhole as the battle is taking place outside and you're not participating in it. And Paul is saying to Timothy and to you, can't do that. You can't do that. Maybe to say this more positively is, you have to see pleasing Christ as your favorite hobby, as your primary job or place of employment. This is the task of your life that flows into everything else. It's pleasing Christ. It's not something else and you please Christ on the side. He won't be ketchup. He won't be on the side. He will be the center of your life with everything else on the side. It's really fitting that this statement about good soldiers focusing on their work 
was something that Paul later wrote to Timothy because now as we continue through this letter to the Philippians written earlier, Paul is actually going to take Timothy, his co-worker, and set him before the Philippians as an example of that very thing, of someone focused on the interests of Christ and not tangled up in his own interests. So if you want to know how to live your life in a way that you're not tangled up in distractions, but you are fully focused on serving Christ by serving each other, then this text gives you an example of how to do that. So let's see it. Philippians chapter 2. How can we be good soldiers? We're told beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus, to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Much of chapter 1 of Philippians, you remember, was about Paul's own affairs, his own Dealings, what was happening to him. That is that he was in Rome, in prison for the sake of the gospel. Yet, God was using that for good. And Paul felt joy. And Paul's expectation was that he would not be beheaded, but that he would be released and could continue to serve others with the gospel. That was chapter 1. But toward the end of chapter 1, there was a sort of turning point in verse 27 where Paul turns away from himself to focus on the Philippians. He said, I'm hoping to come to you, and I expect to. But then he turns to them and says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, whatever happens, I can hear of you and be encouraged. And ever since chapter 1, verse 27, Paul's focus has been on the Philippians, the way he wants them to live their lives. We saw that through the beginning of chapter 2, Christ was given as the example of putting others' interests above your own, his humility, his service of others, his selflessness. We saw that all the way until last week. Because there was another turning last week that happened. And this was a turning away from the Philippians back to Paul. So what happened in 127, Paul to the Philippians. Now we're going back from the Philippians to Paul. Because what we saw last week is he wanted them to hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain. And then he adds, even if I, I am to be poured out, even if I'm killed for your sake, I rejoice, I'm glad, and you should be too. So his long appeal to them to be selfless, He's now turning back to himself. But even as he's turning back to his own affairs, and he's going to talk about his co-worker Timothy and Epaphroditus, he still can't help but be focused on them. And so even as he's talking now about himself, what he's really doing is he's taking the commands he's just given them, which can be summarized as, 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And now, as he turns to himself, he wants to give them examples of what that looks like. He gave them Jesus as an example, but now he's giving them merely human examples. Himself, Timothy, Epaphroditus. And in our text, the example of how to live selfless and serve selflessly, how to be a good soldier, not entangled in your own interests, is given in the person of Timothy. So what we want to do this morning, since this is what Paul does in the text, is to begin by considering the people who are not Timothy, who do not serve well. They are serving, they are Christian, but they are not doing it well. You'll see that in the text. But that's just a backdrop so that you can see an example of someone who is, and that's Timothy. So let's see how we need to live our Christian lives. By beginning to see how not to serve. I hope in the Lord Jesus, he begins here, to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And here is the painful verse. For they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. We might want to know who they all are, who Paul says such a hard thing about, but if we just put that aside for a second, I want to focus on what it is they do, whoever these people are. What is it Paul says that they are doing? Here is the perfect example of how not to serve. Don't live your life this way. He says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul wants to send Timothy to them. He begins with four. Four is telling you on this basis. So looking back, he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And this is why. For I don't have anyone else to send. Because Timothy will be genuinely concerned for you, but everybody else is out here seeking their own interests, not yours and not those of Christ. As you come to this passage, you may wonder, how do I know if that's me in that verse? Because as far as we know, Paul is talking about Christians. But they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Some of you might be doing that. All of us do it on occasion. And some of you might be doing it regularly. How do you know? The Greek of this text doesn't actually say interests. They all seek their own interests. It actually just has a little word that we don't have the same one in English, but it has a little word that just says, the blank. <laughs> they all seek their own blank. And in Greek, you can do that. You don't have to fill it in. In English, you kind of do. So we know there's something they're seeking, and it's their own, whatever it is. And it's not the blank of Jesus Christ. It's the blank of them. That's what the text is saying. So there's so many things you could fill in there. Interest is a good translation if you have the ESV. But he's saying all the things pertaining to themselves. Here's this group of Christians. And in their service, what they are mainly seeking is their own interests, their own benefits, their own advantages, their own financial well-being, their own honor, their own prestige, their own future, their own jobs their own setup in the community, their own power, their own preferences, 
the blank. Many of those things. The main point Paul is making, because he doesn't fill in the blank, is that the things they are seeking, the things they live their lives for, are things that relate only to them. And in contrast, they're not things that relate to Jesus Christ and his interests in the world. They only relate to themselves. That's the key thing. If we're trying to understand, wow, do I do that? The Bible gives us some good examples of people involved in ministry, even serving God, who do it for reasons that relate only to themselves and not the sincere benefit of others. Here, think of this example. Do you remember Balaam in the Old Testament? We spoke of him in the Sunday school class today. Balaam was a prophet, not an Israelite, but it seems a true prophet of God. So here's someone serving God. God literally gave revelations to this prophet, spoke to him in ways he didn't to other people. And Balaam, at the end of Numbers, seems evidently to understand that God is speaking through him. He's on the ground, eyes covered, but he sees. But Balaam did not serve God. He served God, but he did not serve God. Balaam served money. Balaam served himself. And the way he did it was by serving God. Because when the king of Moab came to Balaam, he wanted him to curse the Israelites. And he hinted, listen, if you curse the Israelites for me so we can beat them in battle, I will give you much honor, meaning lots of money. I can fill your house with silver and gold. And Balaam wanted silver and gold. Desperately wanted it. But he told them, listen, God constrains me. So I have to say what he tells me to say. So Balaam goes with them once they ask a second time. And Balaam goes out and they show him on a high mountain. There the Israelites now curse him. And Balaam wants to curse them because he wants the money. But when God reveals a message through him, God, not Balaam, but God turns the cursing into a blessing. And he blesses his people, the Israelites. And the Moabites are frustrated. The king of Moab says, don't bless them, <laughs> curse them. And Balaam tries three times. The third time, he even does it in a different way. He doesn't look the same way he was looking at them, hoping maybe God will let me curse them here because he wanted riches. And yet God turns it to a blessing. So here's someone, a mouthpiece of God. He's serving God. He does communicate God's message ultimately to the Moabites. But he does it with a greedy heart. Not sincerely. Not because he loves God. You might think, well, that's being a little bit hard on Balaam. But actually, we know this from later passages of Scripture, that this was his motivation. So, for example, we know that after this happened, Balaam came back to the Moabites and he gave them counsel as to how they could turn the Israelites to idols and let God destroy them. The New Testament, and I'm sure he got silver and gold for that. The New Testament says that Balaam, quote, loved gain from wrongdoing. And that false teachers, quote, for the sake of gain, abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. It is possible for you as well, and for me, to actually serve others to their benefit, 
to help them know the word of God, to counsel them through difficulties in their lives, to serve them, to bring them meals, but in a way that shows that the main motivation in our heart, even for doing those things, is financial. And sometimes it happens very subtly. It's not always the prosperity preacher with the nice tuxedo in the jet. Sometimes it's happening in a very subtle sort of a way. So Jesus' brother James points out one of these subtle ways he talks about in chapter 2 of his letter, partiality. So if you, even in a local church like this, find yourself naturally attracted to people who seem wealthier, who have more connections in the community, who are more attractive, who seem like the world would respect them more, and you are drawn to them, and you serve them, and you help them, and you want to be involved in their life, even doing good things, but then over here is someone else not so attractive, myself, sorry, no, not so attractive, not so wealthy, someone else who doesn't have any promise of offering you a return if you invest in their life, no business contacts, no connections in the community, perhaps obnoxious, <laughs> again, myself sometimes, perhaps a little annoying in some of their habits, and you, without even fully thinking through it, are drawn to this set of people. The beautiful, the people, the nice social media posts, and away from these. Look, we're not denigrating either group. The thing is that in Christ, the ground is completely level. There's no better and worse here. In Christ, there's complete equality. But you, if you're showing partiality in your service to others, it's usually financially motivated, even if you don't think through it that way, but it's because of some benefit they can offer you. If you're seen around those people, other people are going to respect you. But if you're seen around these people, they may not. The way that James put this, puts this in his letter is like this, quote, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your church, your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts or you could say evil motives? Financial, probably. Advancement in the community that right there, even for us as Christians, which happens, you know, we all have to fight, that's Balaam's error. That is serving God, but doing it in a way that, according to our text, seeks our own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. If you need another example, you can think in the New Testament of the man we call Simon the magician or the sorcerer. In the book of Acts, before the gospel came into his city, Simon, he could do some sort of magic, perhaps by a dark art, and he was impressing people in his city. He was, quote, saying that he himself was somebody great, always a funny line, but he was saying that, and, quote, they all paid attention to him. He was the talk of the town. Well, then in come the apostles, and they bring the gospel message. The Holy Spirit confirms it by miraculous healings and signs. And these are amazing. And all the people direct their attention away from Simon onto these apostles. Simon himself, amazed by what they're doing, joins himself to the number of the Christians. He's following them. He's amazed as someone who tries to do miracles himself. And eventually he tells Peter, hey, 
I've got a large sum of money I'm willing to give you if you can lay your hands on me and give me the Holy Spirit so that I can do these amazing things you're doing. We're not told Simon's motivations other than he was in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. But I think it's probably safe to assume he had been calling himself something great. He had had all of the attention. Everyone looked to him, but he was outdone by the apostles and now he's doing what he can to get the Holy Spirit so that he can be a big shot again. So that people can start looking to him again. And certainly if he had succeeded and bought the Holy Spirit, God forbid, then he would be serving the Lord. He calls himself a Christian. He would be healing people. He would be doing good. But why? Because of the blank of Jesus Christ? The interests of Jesus Christ? No. Because of the interests of Simon the sorcerer. So that he could have prestige. That's the other thing besides money that often drives us in ministry and it's even more subtle than money and it is reputation that we may be thought well of, that we may have honor and it's remarkable how much we can do and how much we can sacrifice so that others like us. There's no one who goes to a soup kitchen and stands there in line and ladles out the soup who then tells the people in line, hey there, I just want you to know that I'm here because I really want everyone in my church community to think that I am an incredible Christian and that I am very active in the faith. Nobody says that. <laughs> we don't say that, right? We say, hey, I'm here because, oh, I want you to have a meal tonight and I love you and Christ loves me. This is a very subtle thing, but that often, if we're honest, can be our motivation. So whether it's money, like Balaam, whether it is honor, here, like Simon, or something else, we haven't even talked about the Pharisees who did it for both those reasons. Whatever it is, fill in the blank, the blank of themselves. They serve Christ for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The one last comment I want to make before we turn to Timothy, because we're going there, is when we do go to the beginning of who they are in verse 21, it's, it is they all. Now, obviously there are some exceptions here because, well, Epaphroditus we're going to see soon. He's well commended. There were people like Luke who attended Paul and Silas. There are some co-workers of Paul that we could not imagine Paul saying this about them. He highly commends them. So when he says, they all, he must nevertheless, apart from those few examples we know, have a large group of Christians who are there with him. And yet when Paul looks at them, he realizes really their ultimate motivation is not sincere. They all. In other words, Paul is saying that among Christians, this is common. You can't all sit here with your arms folded and think, oh yeah, I know some people like that. <laughs> yeah, you, we are the people like that. This is a common, not among the world, just among the world, it is, but this is common among Christians. And Paul might even be thinking above that of just those who are actively engaged in ministry. We saw in chapter one that there were some who preached Christ in Rome in order to spite Paul, not sincerely, so it can happen. And Paul is thinking about they all, lots, this is a 
common sort of a thing for Christians to serve like this. You see it in verse 20 as well because he says, and this is sad, I have no one like him. Family of God, this should drive us not to a morbid introspection where you check every motive till you kill it, but this should drive us to cry out to God in the best deeds we ever do, to cry out that God would make us vessels for honorable use. And he does that by purging away, maybe more than anything else, the false motives that fill our heart. The reason Christ told you at the beginning of your walk with him in Luke 9, that if you wanted to follow him, you would have to get yourself ready to deny yourself every day was because what remains of yourself, your remaining corruption that's still in you as a Christian, every day, not weekly or biannually, but every day is going to present you with ulterior motives for serving Christ. The devil knows that of course, he would love you to abandon the faith altogether, but that's not always going to happen. So he can have a minor success if he keeps you in the faith, but just convinces you to live your Christian life for false motives, to do it for yourself. And then you become like a heathen, like an unbeliever, but on the outside, though there's dead bones inside, you look glossed over on the outside. You look good. False motives, and the devil works hard every day. To produce that, the best work that you do, the kindest you've ever been, that is the temptation within us. They all seek their own interests and we are tempted to do the same thing, if we are honest. There is an interesting fellow, if you've ever read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, whom Bunyan calls by-ends, B-Y-E-N-D-S, meaning by whatever means necessary, by-ends. And by-ends says to Christian, Quote, I had always the luck to jump in my judgment with the present way of the times, whatever it was, and my chance was to get or benefit personally thereby. <laughs> Byans represents the Christian who changes with the times, still a Christian, still serving the Lord, but whatever's popular in the culture, all of the sudden it's popular with them too, because then you get attention and affection from the world. May we not jump in our judgment to gain like Bayans does. We meet, may we not seek our own interests instead of those of Jesus Christ. One very practical application of this, and some of you have probably heard, we've had these sorts of bills for a while, but they're developing. Bills that are being pushed through right now that are trying to condemn what's called conversion therapy. There's one happening up in West Lafayette right now. There's one in Canada. And these are laws that are being proposed that would not allow biblical counselors to tell a homosexual who comes in for counseling and for help to tell them that they need to no longer be homosexual. It would make that illegal with a fine and prison and so forth. Now, we're not alarmist, and, but we can see the trajectory of these sorts of laws, this kind of tolerance that cannot tolerate Christians and their views you can see the trajectory of it that eventually, if this continues, and it may stop, pray for revival, but if this were to continue, then not just those of us who are counseling others, but also those of us who preach or who say anything about the LGBTQ community that's in keeping with a biblical sexual morality, in love, but that's in keeping with this, eventually that will be illegal. 
The temptation for us will be to be a buy-ins as LGBTQ grows in popularity in the world. On the one hand, that community should know that no one loves them more than Christians do, than you do, because you're willing to die that they might be saved. But on the other hand, they should know that we hold fast to the words God's given us and there's no ambiguity, that it's very clear that biblical sexuality is for a male and a female, one, monogamous relationship. It's always been that way, Genesis on, reaffirmed in the New Testament. The temptation will be to reinterpret what you find, to look at Greek words, and this is exactly what happens if you know the debate, to look at a Greek word for homosexuality and say, it doesn't, does it really mean that? Has God really said because the current of culture is changing and you can become an incredibly popular Christian on social media, in your friend group, among unbelievers, if you are willing to bend with the bending of culture. If you are willing to seek your own interests rather than those of Jesus Christ, you could get money, you could get power, you could be loved by the world, you could be accepted, you could advance in your workplace, you could avoid fines in prison, who knows? But may God help us to be not like they all who seek their own interests, who change with the times, who do not seek the interests of Jesus Christ. So what do we want to be like instead? That's all the negativity there. What do we want to be like instead? We don't want to be like they all. We want to be like Timothy. So don't serve like that, seeking secretly your own interests. Serve like this as we move to the second point of this message and our text and its main emphasis. How do we serve each other? Like good soldiers. See here in verse 20. Paul says, For I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. We could summarize all that Paul is saying your service should be by this word, genuinely. Timothy served them, the Philippians, genuinely, sincerely caring about the blank that refers to them, the things concerning them. That's what you have here. That's what your welfare really is. Again, it's that the blank concerning you all. That's what Timothy, not, he doesn't say he cares about it. He cares about it. There's a difference. In our world, we all say we genuinely care about each other. Even unbelievers pretty much will tell you that, at least in the Bible Belt and here the kind of northern Bible Belt that we're in. Everyone will say that we genuinely care about the interests of others. And I'm not trying to be some downer skeptical person, but I doubt it <laughs> because they all seek their own interests and that's even Christians. But the thing that set Timothy apart was that when he said that in his heart, he really did. He's genuinely concerned about their interests, their things. There's a proverb in the Old Testament that says, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love but a faithful man, who can find? Well, 
We found him. Here he is. It's Timothy. He's a faithful man. He's not just proclaiming that he has a steadfast, loyal love toward others, but genuinely he cares. Faithfully he cares. Timothy was called to follow Paul from his own home in Lystra and Derby. His mother was a Jew who was a believer, and Timothy's father was a Greek who was not a believer. But he was called. He had a good reputation when Paul passed through Lystra and Derby calls Timothy to follow with him, has him circumcised for the sake of those who'd be offended if he weren't. And if you read the book of Acts, it's interesting that, do you know the first place they go after Timothy joins him? It's Philippi, where Paul proceeds to plant this church that he's writing to now. In Acts, we're not told what Timothy was doing, but we imagine, we're not told otherwise, that he was there with Paul. When Paul's thrown into the Philippian jail, it's Paul and Silas who are in the prison singing hymns. I don't know how Timothy avoided that sentence or if he just isn't mentioned, but it does seem that he was present there. But he would have been young and green and new to the ministry. He'd been a believer since he was young, but just new to this idea of ministry back when they had seen him last, if indeed he was there, as it seems that he was. What Paul is saying is that they know Timothy's proven worth, verse 22, either because they saw him back then even be faithful or because they've heard about him since. But either way, he says, you know, his proven worth. He's not green anymore. He's been with Paul through all the ups and downs of ministry. And when John Mark sees, whoa, ministry with Paul's tough, he ditches him and goes back home. Timothy stuck with him. Why? Because Timothy genuinely cared about the converts, the elect that Paul was serving, genuinely. And so Paul says he was like a son serving with me. Because in the ancient world, not so much today, but in the ancient world, a son would typically learn their trade from their father. And then that's what they would do their whole life, a cobbler or a smith or what have you. And Paul's using that imagery to say, that's what Timothy is to me. It's like he's been with me humbly as a child, serving with me, learning my ways, and he'll tell those ways to you. He's genuine. He's proven. That means his faith has been tested. And if he was in the faith for money, for reputation, then all of the tests that God had brought to him would have squashed his faith. But he's been proven through trial. And it's evident to God and to others, to them even, that he genuinely cares about them. It's not about money for Timothy. He's not making money. It's not about reputation. Every city he goes in, everyone hates him. Sounds fun. But that's because he's with Paul preaching the gospel. So it's not about reputation. It's not about money. And yet it's miserable. Why does he stick it out? Because he genuinely cares about those who do believe. He's not Demas in love with this present world. Timothy's not in love with it. He's giving it up. He's not John Mark abandoning Paul when the going gets rough. He's sticking it out. He's not even like Peter, that time in Galatians where Peter compromises the gospel for the sake of reputation. Timothy is genuine. He is proven in this case. And he's working with Paul. That's the way we want to serve each other. Don't you wish that Paul would write that about you? your proven character, that you genuinely serve others from the heart. What's interesting in our text is that, of course, Timothy is the prime example, but 
A lot of our text is actually about Paul. And Paul as well is an example of how you serve others. Just like Timothy is. After all, Timothy was just copying Paul. Paul genuinely cared. If you look at verse 20, he says, I have no one like him in the ESV. The word actually is, I have no one of a like temperament, attitude, soul. And it doesn't say him. So you have to kind of guess, like-minded with whom? It might really be saying, Paul saying, I have no one else who shares my own attitude except Timothy. That's probably is what it's saying. And so the attitude we find in Timothy, his genuineness, we find first in Paul. This is his attitude. And you see it even in this very passage. Because look at verse 19 again. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, saw him, he's good, to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul, in his context, is getting up there in age. Time is going along. He's been through a lot of difficult work. And even now, he's shackled to a Roman guard. He doesn't have his freedom. And there is always on him the weight of the churches among everything else. And here's Timothy, this young man who for years has been like his very heart, like a son to him. Paul, who didn't have sons, wasn't married. This Timothy's like a son to him, serving alongside him. Paul, entering town after town, encounters hostile kinsmen who try to kill him. Most people hate Paul. So when you find a Timothy who doesn't, <laughs> find someone who doesn't hate you, that's nice. They come alongside, ah, a refreshment. And yet, what does Paul say? My hope is to keep Timothy with me because, man, life's hard enough already. <laughs> he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Why? Because Paul genuinely cares about them. More than his own interests, he cares about them. Christ's interest is them. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. He's willing to risk Timothy, as we'll see with his other worker, Epaphroditus, next week. When he sent Epaphroditus to them, Epaphroditus got sick, very common in the ancient world, and almost died. That's the risk that Paul's willing to take with Timothy, the one perhaps closest to him as a son in the faith than any other. But he's willing to send him because he desperately wants to know how this Philippian church he's planted is doing. How are they? So you see this genuineness in Paul. It'd be easier to keep Timothy, but he's not going to do it. Why? Because Paul does not serve Christ for his own interests, but for the interests of Jesus Christ, which would include the well-being of the Philippians. Paul is a good soldier. And a good soldier, like a good Christian, does what needs to be done even when it's personally inconvenient. It's a very important principle of the Christian life. I hope we take it to heart. He repeats his point really in verses 23 and 24. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. How better could Paul prove the genuineness of his care for them than to say, I'm not just sending you my heart, Timothy, but I literally want to come to you. I'm going to wait to see how my trial turns out, though I think I will be innocent and released. 
But it's like what he told the Thessalonians, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves. I myself want to come. This isn't me at a distance trying to have you sow your seed of faith into my ministry so that he can make some money. That's not it. Paul's money's where his mouth is. He genuinely cares about them. Beloved, let us not love one another in word or talk. Just in the hallways. Hey, love you, brother. Do that, but let's love in deed and in truth. Timothy serves sincerely with Paul, he says, quote, in the gospel. That's your mission too. Do you hear the whizzing of bullets? You hear that? Male, female, whoever you are, old, young, doesn't matter. You're not excluded. If you're a Christian, the bullets are whizzing in the spiritual realm. You're not just living your nice life on a cruise ship. You are on a battleship. You are being attacked right now. Right now, the devil is working in more ways than you can imagine to undermine your faith to cause you to doubt the goodness of God, to bring tension between you and other believers. The devil gets up early every morning and works heartily until sundown to ruin your faith. How hard do you work to prevent him? It better be hard. It better be like a good soldier who's not making full use of the world and becoming entangled in it. Have a hobby, that's fine. Okay. Watch a movie, eat a nice meal. Do not be entangled in it. If you are, if the main thing about your life is the stuff that should be on the side, your hobby, your work, your own interests that relate solely to yourself, you will shipwreck your faith. Because you're a soldier and you're in a battle and you see Timothy up there, he's not in the foxhole. He has jumped up and he's running across the line. He's fighting for dear life for your sake, for the Philippians, because he genuinely cares about them, even if it costs him his life. And you see Paul, he's an old hardened soldier and he jumps from the foxhole and he charges the line into new territory. They're blowing up everywhere around him and there he goes. He's focused. Eventually they'll hit him. Eventually he'll die but he'll give his life nobly for the good of Christians for all time. Are you still in the foxhole? Are you doing your hobby in the foxhole? Are you doing the blank that refers only to you? That's what you're seeking? Or like Timothy, do you genuinely from the heart Fashion your whole life around the service of others for the sake of Christ. May it be the latter. If God so loved us, we also ought to, like good soldiers, love and serve one another. Sincerely. Let's pray. Lord, please teach us to be good soldiers. Not bad soldiers who risk our spiritual lives. Help us to work diligently at knowing your word as a defense, a shield of faith against the attack of the devil, a sword with which we fight back against all the influences of the world and its temptations and of our own remaining corruption. Help us not to be lethargic, anything but lethargic, not to be tepid, spewed out of your mouth. Help us, Lord, to be fiery, to be zealous with the zeal of Phineas or of the Levites, Lord, please help us to be completely engaged in Christian warfare and the Christian life, which is not violent externally, 
but internally is against sin, but externally is full of the peace, the fruit of righteousness, sown in peace. Help us to do that, to fight against our conflicts with each other, to put them to death and whatever is fleshly in us, to fight against the worldly ideas that set themselves against the knowledge of God, to labor with the truth against it, and to serve one another from the heart and sincerely. Lord, you have sent us many trials these recent years, but we're not upset about them. We pray you'd even send more if necessary to purge away the ulterior motives that drive us and help us like Timothy to love each other genuinely and from the heart. For the sake of your great glory, amen. Amen.